Welcome back to the Conclusion of the Matter podcast. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So again, I'd like to welcome everybody back. I'm joined as always by Ren Ferguson and Ryan Weaver. If you have any questions about this podcast or topic ideas or questions about podcasts from the past or uh, suggestions, then you can email us at the conclusion of the matter at yahoo.com. You can message or, or call either one of us, say something to us in person. Uh, but again, please like and share this this uh, podcast with your friends. Uh, and Ren, why don't you tell us about what we're going to be talking about in today's podcast? All right. Uh, again, just to reiterate what Robbie said, glad everybody's tuning in. Uh, also, we haven't mentioned this on a podcast yet. I know we've talked about it with some people here uh, who worship here at the Collinsville Troy Church of Christ, but as of not our last episode, but I believe the episode before last, we finally crossed that 2,000 play mark, and uh, we just want to thank y'all for the support and mm-hmm. for the encouragement that y'all have given us uh, in this endeavor, and uh, we hope that all of you have been edified and encouraged and have grown in your knowledge of God's Word as we've gone through uh, these things together. Uh, so again, just want to say thank you to, to all of y'all who regularly tune in and uh, listen uh, uh, to the lessons that we we try to put together uh, for y'all. Uh, but today we, I guess, are kind of introducing a new segment, kind of, sort of, somewhat. Uh, we're going to begin looking at the book of 1 John, which if you attend here at the Collinsville Troy Church of Christ, you know that in recent months, uh, we usually will have a, a study on one Saturday night of the month. And what we've been going through, and we actually finished it up, at least as of recording, we finished it up this past weekend. Uh, and we're looking at the book of First John. And what we're going to be doing is we're not going to be going into too much detail. Uh, we're, it's not going to be a verse-by-verse kind of study or anything like that. Uh, and I think we're going to work this in with some other books as well as we go along. Uh, but we're just going to do a, a basic study of these different books, beginning with First uh, John. And, and I believe we're going to make this split this up into two different parts, getting through roughly the first half of the book here in this lesson today, and then we'll cover the second half of it next week, Lord willing. Uh, and so just to start here in First John, uh, it's always important for us to remember who is being written to. And a lot of times, especially whenever you look at the letters that were written by Paul, a lot of times you'll see at the beginning of his letters to the saints at Ephesus or Colossae or Philippi or Thessalonica, wherever it is, a lot of times he'll address very specifically the audience that he has in mind. And, of course, those are generally called the Pauline epistles or something of that extent. But then you also have a collection of letters that are kind of called the general letters. Uh, things such like First and Second Peter or what we're looking at here in First John or even the book of James, 
where there's not a particular congregation, not a particular group of Christians that they have in mind, but kind of written to the church as a whole. And whenever we look at New Testament scripture, especially thinking about, I believe it's recorded at the end of the book of Colossians, where they were commanded to, in essence, pass that letter on to other congregations that were around them and to read the letters that were written to those congregations as well. And so in the first century, they they uh, kind of cycled these lessons or these letters, rather, uh, in the, the area congregations. And so what we have here in 1 John is one of those types of letters, uh, not written to a particular congregation or to a particular person, but written to kind of the church as a whole. And in verses 1 through 4, uh, we see his introduction, if you will, and I kind of think of this as almost John kind of stating his credentials, uh, kind of solidifying uh, some basic fundamental facts before he gets into the nitty-gritty, if you will, and talking about how he had witnessed, and not only he, but also others in the first century, namely the apostles, had witnessed Christ. Uh, in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be full. So again, kind of John's introduction to the book uh, there. And he states, especially in verse 4, he's writing these things so that their joy may be full. Uh, in chapter 5 and verse 13, he also states that he was writing these things so that they could know they have eternal life. I think it's 13 times in this book he uses that phrase, we may know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really kind of at the heart of, of this letter is knowing for certain various aspects of of Christianity, but honing in, especially towards the end of the book there, uh, our salvation. And so that's kind of the the introduction, at least just a couple of things very briefly about the beginning of the book. Do you all have Yeah, anything? I think that he starts with this saying that we witnessed, we touched, we felt, we saw, because... John is writing to Christians, to your point, but what are they dealing with? They're dealing with these teachers that are coming out, the Gnostics that are starting right. to teach that anything in the flesh is bad. Um, therefore, if Christ was in the flesh, he couldn't have been God. Mm -hmm. So he's he's counteracting that. And matter of fact, he covers that in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, because he talks about different iterations of him being in the flesh he goes into, which we'll probably cover a little bit, the, the big word Antichrist, yeah. um, which mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll simplify yeah. for you when we get to it. But, um, but I think he's setting the tone that I have witnessed it. I have, and to your point, more than just him, but they touched it. You know, they, they right. felt him. They, it, I witnessed, but was, was able to actually be with him, and this yeah. was the Son of God. Right, and it's kind of like that idea of not just kind of witnessing in a in like a passerby kind of sense but they knew him mm -hmm. very intimately in that sense of because they had spent i mean those three years with him learning from him being with him witnessing all of those things and so he's saying 
Okay, I've got I've got eyewitness testimony, and not only me, but again the apostles, right. even the five hundred to whom he appeared after uh, his resurrection. resurrection. It reminds me of almost the style in which he uses to begin John as well, and kind of like right. what you guys were just talking about. He lays like a lot of like foundational things. It almost reminds me of okay before before we get into anything else, let's lay the groundwork and you know, establish this first, like how, you know, in the book of John, he establishes who Christ is before he explains all the different things that he did throughout his life. And in the same manner, he again reveals the factual part of of Jesus and that they had the relationship with him and that they witnessed all of these things Mm -hmm. before he gets into the details of of the actual letter itself. Right. And, and yeah, you're exactly right. I had that thought as well because it is very similar because he's kind of laying, again, like you said, that foundation of of kind of the deity of Christ mm-hmm. and that incarnation. Right. Anything else that you guys had on those few verses? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, there in the remainder of the chapter, verses 5 through 10, is a very well-known mm-hmm. passage of Scripture, mm-hmm. especially the latter part of it. Uh, but in this particular portion he is talking about the command that we are to walk in the light kind of going back to what he mentions in verse 3 talking about us having fellowship with brothers and sisters but ultimately having fellowship with the father and his son and he states there in verse 5 this is the message which we have heard from God and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all so Again, kind of laying, introducing what he's about to say, laying the foundation. And obviously, God is light. We we know that that is true, but I think he's using this more of in a metaphorical sense in this, you know, given the context, context. talking about the fact that God is good, he is righteous, he is holy, and in him there's no sin, i.e. darkness, in him at all. And in verse 6, if we say we have... Fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we're living in sin, he's saying it's impossible for us to have fellowship with God. If we're walking in darkness, we cannot have fellowship with him. But then he gives us, of course, that uh, contrast in verse 7. If we are walking in the light, what does it mean to walk in the light? Trying our best to live righteously. Right. Because it's not, and I think a lot of people kind of feel this way, and I think we've talked about this before, I don't know if on the podcast or just, you know, in our discussions, but a lot of people feel like they have to be perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's kind of a natural result of anybody who's wanting to do what God has commanded them to do. It's, you know, we kind of expect ourselves to be perfect because that's Mm -hmm. what we want to do. Because we don't want to do anything that's wrong because we love God and want to do what he's commanded us to do. And so whenever he says walking in the light there, he's not talking, obviously, not talking about being perfect. And he clarifies that in the following verses. Uh, But it's that doing our due diligence to live faithfully to him. Did you have something? Right. I was just going to say, I think it clarifies it even further in the next few verses, like in verse 8, where it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, you know, He even implies there that, you know, you're going to sin, you're going to mess up, uh, but it's about holding yourself accountable and having, you know, the honesty to, to, to say that I've messed up. 
and to ask for forgiveness for those sins and to strive, right. like to Ryan's point, to for that righteousness. Right. So. Did you have something? Oh, okay. No, I'm good. All right. Uh, and and you're exactly right, Robbie. And even going back to verse 7, just one more thing to hit on that verse. At the end of and. that, he says, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If you look at the King James, which it's basically the same in the ESV here, but the word is cleanseth, or as we see here, cleanses. It's that, I, I believe it's, I believe the part of speech is present active indicative, which means that it is a continuous action. And so if we are living faithfully to God, that blood of Christ, of course, that we come in contact with, you know, to begin with through baptism, that blood of Christ is always there. And we are we always have contact with, with it. We are always being cleansed by it if we are living faithfully to Him. But again, to your point, Robbie, he goes on to say that, again, doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless. But what that does mean is if when we sin and we repent and confess, as he says in verse 9, that blood is always there. It is always ready and willing to cleanse if we repent and confess. Agreed. I Mm -hmm. I would just tell the listeners to make note of these verses because we will revisit these in chapter 5. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, we will. (laughs) Okay, anything else on the remainder of chapter Mm 1? Okay, well, chapter 2, he leads... He takes that principle there at the end of chapter 1 and leads right into what he's discussing at the beginning of chapter 2. Again, he's writing so that they may not sin, so that they can have the knowledge of you know, how to live, so that they don't fall into sin. But also in verse 1 of chapter 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And to me, I, I think we, for those that attend here, I think we talked about this in our study of Hebrews a few weeks back. But to me, this is honestly one of the most encouraging and comforting verses. It's not a verse maybe that we always think about. We always think about verse 7 of chapter mm-hmm. 1. But I mean, we, I mean, you think about what he's saying there. Jesus is our advocate. He's, he pleads on our behalf to the Father. And going back to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, that's because, or chapter 2 and verse 18 as well, that's because he knows exactly what it's like to be in our shoes. Mm-hmm. And so when we do sin, Christ pleads for us. He advocates for yeah, it, right? And that's exactly. the whole point of the I mean, it's almost like having the best attorney in the world with right. on your side. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so we have that advocate, him pleading for us. And again, he's writing that so that when we do sin, we know we have that advocate. And that advocate not only pleads for us, but in verse 2, he's also the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This whole passage really, I guess, verse 1 going down, I guess, through verse 6 there, he's talking about that Christ is our advocate and that that propitiation that he lays out in verses 1 and 2, that payment for our sins. Uh, anything? I was just going to, I was going to say, just if people don't know what that yeah. means, it's a, it's a payment to appease someone's wrath. And in right. this case, the, the appease the, the wrath of God. Right. Because we don't use that word. No, on a daily. <laughs> no, not really. And I was just going to add that just like we mentioned for chapter one, uh, this is, this is not something that has a limit. It's a continual thing as long as we are walking in the light. Um, so. Right. Uh, 
And then in the remainder of that section, verses 3 through 6, he's talking about, in essence, what it means to know God. And a lot of people, they claim to know God, but based on the biblical definition of what it means to know God, they don't actually know him. Because as he states in verse 3, I think he kind of gives us the definition of it. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's also going to be a kind of common theme yeah. throughout the book of John too. Well, I think he bookends it with verse six. It says, If you if if whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, which tells you that you have to follow his example. Right. Right. You gotta live how he lived, at least to the best of your ability. Uh, and even going back to verse eight of chapter one, kind of this again, the mindset that sometimes people don't realize the state that they're in but in verse 8 it says if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so a lot of people think that you know they're they're fine when in fact they're not following god's commandments and they're just deceiving themselves right and even in this might be kind of what you were referencing there in verse 4 whoever says i know him but doesn't keep his commandments he's a liar exactly and you know a lot of times you know this world in the Christian religion has become so diluted by all of the different teachings and all of the different doctrines that people kind of, I mean, they're always like, well, that's your interpretation or that's my interpretation. Well, you got to, you know, that's your opinion. And we're all on those different paths to heaven. But Christ is saying, no, if you don't do what I say, then you don't actually know me. And you're a liar. It's not in us. Yep. And of course, what that implies, going back to the end of that, is we don't have salvation. Don't have that atonement. Or right. That don't have the advocate. Christ isn't pleading on our behalf. We don't have that payment. Yeah. Verse two, that propitiation, because we don't keep his word. Again, chapter, or not chapter, but verse five, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's very similar to what he says there in verse 4, or verses 3 and 4. A lot of people claim to love God, but they don't actually do what he has told them to do, which shows that they don't, in the biblical sense, love him. And so there, in that section of, of chapter 2, he's talking about Christ being our advocate, being that propitiation, and what it means to actually know him is, of course, keeping his commandments. And as John is writing this, obviously, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talking about keeping God's commandments, he's going to lead into the quote-unquote new but not new commandment in verses 7 through 14. Y'all have anything else? I was just going to add to where you left off there that it's he brings up a lot of similar points that he brings up in the gospel that he had already written. I mean, even talking about keeping his commandments— you know, he's like, this isn't something new. I've told you guys before, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then a chapter later in John 15, 14, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you. And mm-hmm. he's saying it's really as simple as that, and it's been the case, you know, for for quite a while now. Right, exactly. Anything else? No. Okay, then, verses 7 through 14, he's talking about, like I said, the new but not new commandment. In verse 7, Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning, or that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light 
is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And he obviously goes on with other details, but there I think in those verses uh, kind of sets forth the point that he's, he's making here in this section. And that new commandment is that we are to love one another. Uh, which harkens back, I think, to, like you referenced a moment ago, how he's kind of reiterating a lot of the points that he wrote in his gospel account, uh, because there in John 13, 34, and 35, he records Christ as saying, a new commandment I give unto you, that you ought to love one another even as I have loved you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's, like I said, and even as John says there in verses 7 and 8, it's new, but it's not new. Mm-hmm. because at the heart of it, it is really what God has always expected of mankind. You think about Mark 12, 30 and 31. First of all, we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also we should love our neighbor as ourself. Now, Christ, of course, I think adds to that in John 13. We're not just loving as we would love ourselves, but we would love as he loves, which I think he gets into later in the book as well. I think it's in chapter four uh, Mm -hmm. where he gets into that a little bit more, but this, this particular section talking about again, having that love for one another and how, if we don't have that love, then we are not walking in the light. Y'all have anything? No, I just, well, yeah, I want to add one thing. It tells us that our relationship, not only with our brothers, but one another is, very important to our where our standing is with God. It's not just, right. am I good with God? Okay, check. But how are you? How are you treating everyone else? Which yeah. goes back to your Jesus pointing out the first and se- first and second greatest commands covered that. Right. Right. And I was just going to point out, like this whole section, you had mentioned that it's kind of like the knowing God test, and it's as simple as you know how. Are you walking like Jesus was walking, and are you keeping God's commandments? And specifically, are you loving others, or are you not? And you have to be doing all of those things in order to truly know God. Right, exactly. Uh, He then moves on in verses 15 through 17, a smaller section, but in this uh, particular section, I guess he's kind of contrasting what he just said in verses 7 through 14. Uh, we ought to love our brothers and sisters and not love this world, which is his point in verses 15 through 17. Because as he states in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so here we have that admonition of or that warning against loving the world because, as he's saying, the world's going to pass away. And I think he's kind of implying it here, especially there at verse 17. If we love this world, then we're going to... Perish with it. Yeah, perish with it. Or we're not going to be yeah. annihilated, but we're going to be eternally condemned and, and not be able to be with our Father. Uh, and I believe we read of a similar ab- admonition in James. Uh, I think it's at the beginning of chapter 4 where he talks about if any man uh, is a friend of the world, he, he is the, yeah, yeah. the enemy of God. Uh, and so John then again 
contrasting it, verses 7 through 14, you need to love your brothers and don't love this world because this world is passing away. Anything on those few verses? Just kind of reminds me of even Galatians 5 where it makes the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. You know, you can you can prioritize spiritual things and fall after God and righteousness, or you can value things of this earth and the works of the flesh. You know, mm-hmm. those two things, you can't have it both ways. They're contradictions of one another, and it can't be light and darkness. It's one right. or the other. Right. All right. Then, really, I guess you could take verse 18 through the end of the chapter, or you could kind of put the last two verses of chapter 2 with the first part of chapter 3, uh, just depending on, you know, how you want to look at it. And uh, I know we make reference to this quite often, but chapter breaks and verse breaks were put there by men, and there are many times where they were not put there in the best place. Uh, but in verses 18 through 27 is where we read about the Antichrist. The first time. The first time. Yeah. Well, the first and second time. Okay. Yeah. Because, well, in verse 18 is the first time, and then in, oh, verse 22 is the second time. Uh, it's where we read the actual word, is what I mean. Chapter, okay. Go on. And then in chapter 4 and verse 3 is the third time. Yeah, and that's then, what I was referring to. I'm and sorry. then the last time that, he, that we read that word is in Second John and verse 7. So there's only four times that that word is used in Scripture. But it has caused a whole slew of of confusion and different teachings and different doctrines because I think people confuse the Antichrist. Well, first of all, a lot of it is based off of poor understanding of the book of Revelation because unfortunately what a lot of people will do is they'll go to the book of Revelation, they'll see that apocalyptic imagery, they'll kind of try to come up with an idea of what they think it means, and then they'll interpret the rest of Scripture based off of what they think Revelation is talking about rather than trying to interpret Revelation off of the rest of the Scripture. It's like Uh, what we were talking about the other day. I forget when we were talking about this, but people will sometimes go to, like, the complex verses to, like, try to try to twist the words to a certain meaning instead of like looking at like the simple verses to understand like what the complicated parts of the rest of the Bible mean that it's like reverse logic, you know? Right. And that, and that's true of, and maybe we could do some other lessons on this, but that's like the thousand year reign. Mm -hmm. We only ever read about that a single time in scripture and it's in revelation 20. And when you look at that, it says nothing about Christ being on earth. It says nothing about, all of the saints reigning with him, but it's talking about those that were martyred reigning a thousand years. And so it's, you got to be very careful. But that one verse is like the basis of a lot of people's theology. Anyways, we're getting sidetracked. Going back, going back to what he's talking about here, the Antichrist. And as we're talking about, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of debate on who the Antichrist is. Some people think it's the Pope. I've heard some people say that it's Joe Biden. I've heard, I mean, it's just, there's, you name a politician or any kind of religious leader that's very prominent and considered to be evil, people have said that they're the Antichrist. Well, some of those people might actually fit it based on the definition he well, gives. Well, that is true. That is true. You know, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Yeah. So they could be, but right. it's not a title. Yeah. It's not I'm wearing it's not a cape like a single person. Says, right. Yeah. They're not the antichrist as in that sense of what you are just describing 
because that's how a lot of people view it as this One is person. a a single person in the history of the world that is i don't know just i guess the most wicked person that's ever lived that'd be satan satan on earth yeah, yeah. but he is an antichrist too he is I mean, yeah yeah uh but as as Ryan was just explaining there John defines for us so very clearly in these verses what he means by Antichrist. And what he means is anybody who is Antichrist, anybody who denies him, anybody who denies, as he says in verse 22, who denies the Father and the Son, anybody who even denies his deity or denies his historical existence, denies his resurrection, denies any of these things that we, we talk about, those doctrines of the faith of Christianity, whoever denies those is the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not mystical. Pretty, John tells us very clearly. Pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, and even as he says in verse 18, going back to what we were just talking about, we've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Plural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were already there. Mm-hmm. It's not future but it was even present and so clearly this can't be talking about one historical figure that's going to come and overthrow the world and you know the battle of armageddon and all of these other things that people say in connection with the antichrist but it is someone who simply denies christ and kind of connecting this back with what he's talking about there in verses 15 through 17 those who are antichrist often love the world and he's warning us against them. And he'll reiterate this in, in verse 4, but always, or not verse 4, chapter 4, uh, but always testing everything that we hear and making sure that it is, in fact, the truth, because there are all of those antichrists in the world who are going to try to undermine our faith and our confidence in the Word of God and in Christ. Okay, y'all have anything on verses 18 through 27? I was just going to point out, like, starting in verse 19, sometimes they're like people that were in the church or were associated with the church and then left the church for various reasons um, that can be bad influences on us. But John even mentions again, like, that I'm writing you not because, like, you don't already know, but just to be aware that the same thing doesn't happen to you, uh, that sometimes people have left the church and now deny deny who Jesus was. So so don't be deceived by these people. Instead, be aware of these people. Right. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about kind of with those few introductory remarks, him using that phrase, we may know 13 times. Mm -hmm. He's trying to give them assurance, trying to give them a a reminder of of these basic uh, teachings and doctrines and that admonition against those who deny Christ. Okay. Uh, As I mentioned, the last part of chapter two really could kind of go with the first part of chapter three, uh, where he begins to address that we are, uh, the children of God. And I know we didn't look at this specifically, but the end of verse 27 kind of leads into that. He says, just as it, as it has taught you abide in him. And then in verse 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from uh, him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, talking about abiding in Christ, which going back to 
even what he's talked about here, keeping God's commandments, Christ said in John 8 and verse 31, if you abide in my words, you will be my disciple indeed. Again, knowing his word, keeping his word, abiding by and living in his word, and by so doing, we abide in him. Uh, and him introducing that topic of us being the children of God is what he addresses, I think, primarily in the first part of chapter 3. Um, us being the children of God, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that He, when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And again, talking about us being the children of God and ultimately that hope that we have in verse 2, that we're going to become, we're going to be like Christ when he returns. I think that kind of harkens back to 1 Corinthians 15 and, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 through 18 there. Uh, mm -hmm. Y'all have anything? Nope. I was just going to key in on that word abide. It's... I just think that it's one of those words that I'm reminded of like being surrounded by or that it's that it's like characteristic of who you are. Um, and I'm almost like even back to chapter one again, like how God is light, then in the same way we need to abide in God and it needs to be like an integral part of our lives, something that is continuous, that never changes and is just always the case. So. Right, right. And uh, he goes on in... Verses 3 and 4, Whoever thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And I believe we have discussed that verse on another podcast because in other translations like the New King James, it says that uh, sin is a transgression of the law. And so, again, going back to what he talked about, in chapter 1, we're not going to be perfect, but there is a drastic difference between committing sin and, as he says, practicing sin and living in it. Uh, any sin is a transgression of God's law, but when we live in it, then we are not, as he says in verse 3, we are not purifying ourselves. We are not walking in that light, chapter 1, and we, of course, have forfeited our, our salvation. And... Uh, he goes on to describe a number of, of different things, again, calling them little children, That using that endearing term uh, uh, for these, these Christians. Uh, thinking about what he says there in verse 7, he says, let no one deceive you. Again, that kind of general point, don't be led astray from the truth. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, and whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so again, he's saying it's evident, and really that's his whole point in this, is it's evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Yeah, I was just thinking, it's he's making it clear that um, he can, you can tell what team you're on by what you practice, right? He's used the term practice, at least in the English Standard Version. He's not talking about practicing like a sport but he's talking about like a law practice it's it's they're making it their their career are we making christianity our career or are we making sin our career and here he's saying at the end of chapter two um 
that everyone who practices righteousness, so does righteousness, is from God, basically. And then he goes on and, and differentiates, like you said there, between verses 4 and wherever that ends there in verse 8, that if you're practicing sin, you you can't be from God. You can't know God. You can't know Jesus, right? right? So you right. can tell. And then he kind of summarizes all of that there in verses 9 and 10, too. Especially in verse 10, I think. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You should have just told me to wait till that verse and then you could have just summed it it up. (laughs) No, you're good. Uh, But that's what he's talking about there in in that part of of chapter, end of chapter 2, first part of chapter 3. Y'all have anything else? I just, like, it's... You can only pretend to be something for so long. And I think it's yeah. like a continuous thing, like in chapter one, talking about light. You can't be light if you're walking in darkness and if you, you're like deceiving yourselves. And then he brings up the kind of the same or a similar point here that you can you can claim to be like righteous, but if your actions don't follow that mm-hmm. up, then are you really righteous? Right. No, are you abiding in God? No. So, and... There's an old saying in the South that maybe I'll wow our audience with a new one this time, but it's one of those on, things. Get ready for the up. button, Ren. Well, I guess it's, I don't know if phrase is the right word, but I had an old teacher that used to say, if it, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, must be a duck. Yeah. So you're like, if, if you're practicing sin but claiming to be righteous, then probably not a duck. Nope. So. And, and I think you make a good point there because we always have to examine ourselves and make sure mm-hmm. that we are actually doing what God has commanded us to do. Because while you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that a lot of times we might be able to convince other people that we're living righteously, but God ultimately knows whether or not we're doing from the heart what he has commanded us to do. Thinking about First Timothy five twenty four and 25, that some men's sins are known going into the judgment, but some are not known until the judgment. And the same is true, as he says, of people's good works. And so we might be able to deceive people here. And I think that's kind of his point is, first of all, we can know who is and who isn't. But we also need to examine ourselves to make sure that we are actually children well, of God. I think the reason why we need to do that is because we can deceive ourselves, too. Exactly. It's not just exactly. the other people. It's we can convince ourselves we're okay. Right. And that's very dangerous. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And I think that reveals part of God's nature about like how he is like, but he's also like omniscient. He knows everything. So you can't fool God. And, you know, the fact that he's light, your life is going to be revealed. What, like whether, whatever you think it is, it may be something different, but Mm -hmm. God's nature is light. And the things that you've done is going, they're going to be revealed. They're not going to be hidden. Right. Exactly. Well, do y'all have any closing comments before we wrap it up? I think we went eh, a couple minutes longer than usual. Uh, but y'all have anything? Okay. That's it. Well, again, we're glad that y'all tuned in today. Uh, come back next week for the remainder of this brief study of the book of First John. And, of course, we encourage you, if, if you can, to take your time and go through it and study it in more depth. Uh, but just kind of laying a bit of a foundation, a general study again of this book here in these two lessons. Uh, As Robbie mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, if you guys ever have any comments or questions, feel free to let us know. You can text us individually. You can message our Facebook page. You can uh, email us at the conclusion of the matter uh, at yahoo.com. 
Uh, or you can just talk to us if you see us and give us any questions or suggestions that you might have. But for now, I guess you can say that that is the, the conclusion, conclusion of, of the matter. matter.